Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. The first scripture reading today comes from the Hebrews, chapter 7, 11 to 17, 26 through 28. Listen for God's word. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for the people received the law under this priesthood, what further need would there have been to speak of another priest arising according to the order of Melchizedek rather than the one according to the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. It is even more obvious when another priest arises, resembling Melchizedek, one who has become a priest not through a legal requirement concerning physical descent, but through the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people. This he did once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests those who are subject to weakness. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. (laughs) So we're talking about Hebrews. And we're in chapter 10, verses 1 to 8. Since the law has only a shadow of good things to come, and not the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who approach. Otherwise, would they not have ceased being offered, since the worshipers, cleansed once for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, See, God, I have come to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we are doing our sermon series, Church and State, the Rise of Early Christianity. Each week we are looking at the history of the early church, the documents we find in the New Testament, and we are asking the question, do you remember what the question is? What does the church in the first century have to teach us about being the church in the 21st century? We are in the final sermon of the second part of our series that deals with the second generation 
of Christians. That's from 70 to 90 AD, as you can see up there. And for the last couple of weeks, the bulk of this series, the second part of this series, has focused on how Jewish Christians have been trying to convince other Jews that they should follow Jesus as the Messiah. And today we are talking about the final appeal, the final opportunity where a Jewish Christian tries to convince his fellow Jews that Jesus is worth following. Now we read from the book of Hebrews, and I don't know about you, but I find the book of Hebrews to be rather confusing. True? A <laughs> little bit, yeah? And so this morning, we're going to be talking about Hebrews, and I'm just going to be straight up with you. I really need you to pay attention to what I'm saying, okay? Like, I can't have you zone out and look at the ceiling and be like, those lights are really nice up there. Like, you're not, it's not going to work today if you do that, because if you're not following what I'm saying, the whole thing's going to fall apart. So I really need you to kind of focus in, and I'll tell you when I really need you to lock in with me, okay? Because it's going to get complicated. So, we start off with Hebrews. The author of Hebrews, we don't know who it was. No idea. Many people for a long time thought it was Paul, but we know it's not Paul based on the language. But what we do know is that the author was very intelligent and that the author had a distinct knowledge of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So I want to talk about the order and the content of the Torah because we need to understand this to understand what's happening with his arguments. So what are the first five books of the Bible? We got it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the first five books. Okay, Genesis. We spent a whole year talking about Genesis. I'm sure it's crystal clear in your minds that it was four years ago, but the whole point of Genesis is to lay the foundation of where the 12 tribes of Israel come from. 12 tribes of Israel, where do they start? And Genesis is trying to explain that. In Exodus, what happens is you get in the first part of the book, you learn that those 12 tribes are now enslaved in Egypt. And the first half of the book of Exodus is God trying to release them from their slavery through Moses' leadership and through the ten plagues. But then you get to the second half, and they're out. And where do they go? They end up in the wilderness. And how long are they there? Forty years. So it's during this time they're in the wilderness. They're wandering around that Moses receives the law from God. Now, how many laws are there? I've said this a number of times. Do you remember how many laws are there? 613. Very good. You all did better than the first service. Okay. <laughs> so, 613. If you have trouble remembering that, just remember 6 plus 1 plus 3 equals 10, like the Ten Commandments. And of course, it all starts with the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and it goes from there. Now, many of these laws, many of these laws are actually found in the book of Leviticus. What does the book of Leviticus mean? It literally means the book of the Levites. The book of the Levites. Now, the question is, who are the Levites? Well, the Levites, they are priests. And their job was to perform all of the religious functions for the Israelite people. Let me give you a few examples of some of the things they would do. So they would perform ceremonial liturgies, kind of like what I do up here with you all, what Judy does, right? But they would also do things like they would assess whether or not you are sick and whether or not you needed to be healed. They would also do things like they would determine whether or not you needed to burn your clothes if they were moldy. So if your clothes are moldy, they would say, ah, you need to get rid of these, you got to burn them. I don't do that, just so you know. That's not really part of my job responsibilities. But you know, one of the biggest things that they were required to do. Their most important function was 
that they were the ones who sacrificed animals on the altar. So this is how it worked. Let's just say you're an average Israelite. You come into the temple, which is kind of like our church, and you come up to the altar, right? And the priest would be here at the altar. So let's say you're going to bring a bull in. So you bring the bull down the aisle. I would take him, let's just say for argument's sake, I'm the priest. I take him up here, and what I would do is I would take this big knife, and I would slice the neck of this bull open. And so it would start bleeding out all over the ground. Then I would take some of that blood, and I would spread it around different parts of the room. According to what's said in the Torah, I put some of it on the altar, too. And then I would take that same knife, once that bull is dead, and I would start butchering it, carving it up. And what you have to realize is that even though our altar, the altar we have is quite small, their altar was huge, it was really large, and there was a fire built on top of that altar. And so the priest, I would take some of that meat, and I'd put it up here on the altar, and I'd cook some of that meat. And you know who eats it? Me! Because that's my way of getting food. And then I would also take some of that, and I would also, the remainder, and later on I would sell it at market. So it was a way of making money. Now, why do I go through all of this effort? Why did you bring me the bull? Why do I do this? Because according to the laws of Leviticus, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, then you have to sacrifice this animal, and then God will forgive you. The first high priest, his name was Aaron, Moses' brother. And they all supposedly descended from Aaron in the Levite line. So you want to be forgiven? you got to go to one of these priests. you got to give them the sacrifice. And then, only then, will God forgive you for your sins. This is why the Jews and the Israelites before them, they built these, this enormous temple in Jerusalem because they wanted a central location where everybody could come together and bring their sacrifices and be forgiven of their sins. But what happens in 70 AD? Do you all remember? We've talked about it a lot during the second part of this series. What happens? The temple is destroyed. It's brought to the ground. So this is a big problem. It creates a huge conundrum because if there is no temple, you can't perform the sacrifices anymore, then how is God supposed to forgive you of your sins? Well, this is where the author of Hebrews steps in and offers a solution. All right, now I really need you to click in for me, okay? Because this is where things are going to get complicated. So he begins with this foundational premise. And the premise goes like this. He says that God never intended for those sacrifices to be performed indefinitely. And this is the argument that he uses towards that end. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, what he means is, you come into the temple, and you have your sacrifice. So, we go through the whole process I just described. Now you're forgiven, right? But what happens? You go back out, and are you going to sin again? Yeah, you are. And so, what he's saying is, it's a losing proposition. Because the fact is, you can never have the slate fully wiped clean, because you'll continually make mistakes, and you're always going to have to come back and offer more sacrifices. So, it is in this vein that he comes up with a solution to this problem. This is what he says. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for the people received the law under this priesthood, what further need would there have been to speak of another priest arising according to the order 
of Melchizedek, rather than one according to the order of Aaron. All right, I know that that's about as clear as mud, right? But this is the argument. So essentially, what he's saying is that if you want perfect forgiveness, you can't go through those Levitical priests. You need to go through a different kind of priest, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And the question you should be asking yourself right now is, who is Melchizedek? Good. Okay, this is where knowing Genesis comes in super handy, okay? Because Melchizedek is this really odd, very strange character in the book of Genesis. Let me give you a little bit of context about where he shows up. So, Abraham has this cousin. His name is Lot, right? And Lot always is getting himself into trouble, always. And Abraham has to go and rescue him. And after he rescues him, this guy, King Melchizedek, comes out of nowhere. Want to read the story of Melchizedek? It's real short. This is it, right here. And King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? He was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him one-tenth of everything. That's the story. That's it. There is no other reference to Melchizedek. That's the thing right there. And I actually love this story because I would love that if I could go to your house, bring you some bread and wine, and give you a prayer, and then you give me one-tenth of everything you have. <laughs> I like that idea a lot. So, Melchizedek. Who is he? Well, he's clearly a king, and he brings this whole bread and wine thing. And what's that similar to? It's similar to what? Communion, it's strange, right? And he's said to not only be a king, but to be a priest of God Most High. A priest. So what this means is, is that he worships the same God as Abraham, and he's a priest of that God. Now this is odd for several different reasons. The first reason is that if you read closely in the book of Genesis, God only really speaks to Abraham's family. So the question is, how does Melchizedek know about Abraham's God? We don't know. The second issue is this. How does Melchizedek become a priest for God? Because what you have to realize is that priests don't become a thing until the book of Exodus. And we're in the book of Genesis. So where does this priest come from, right? You need the law in order to have priests. He just comes out of nowhere. So it's a mystery. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. He's just kind of this guy who comes and goes. He's a priest, we don't know why, and he's a mystery. He's gone. So, the author of Hebrews, he wants to shed some light on this mystery. And he says that Melchizedek, he's a priest, and that Jesus is a line, or he's a priest in the line of Melchizedek. That's the argument that he makes, that Jesus is a priest in the line of Melchizedek. Now, this is a very inventive argument but in order to understand it, I just need to tell you the difference between the Levitical priests and Melchizedek as a priest. So let's take a look at these two guys. So, the Levitical priests. These priests, like Aaron, Moses' brother, they exist because of the sacrificial system. You need the priests to perform the sacrifices, right? Like, that's the key with them. You need those priests so that you can perform the sacrifices and be forgiven. But Melchizedek... 
because he comes up in Genesis, and because he's before all those laws, because the laws start in Exodus, right? So he's not tied to those Old Testament laws. He's not linked to them in the same way. And so he can operate independent of those laws. Okay. So essentially the argument goes like this. That when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD and the sacrifices could no longer be offered, it basically invalidated the Levitical priests. They ceased to exist. There's no reason to have them anymore. But because Melchizedek is not tied to the Old Testament laws, and he's not tied to the sacrifices, and he's not tied to the temple, well, his priesthood can continue unimpeded. Therefore, if Jesus is a priest in the line of Melchizedek, then what that tells you is that even though all the Levitical priests are gone, well, you still have a priest for the Jews in Jesus. Make sense? Kind of? You with me? You zone out? Ceiling's nice, isn't it? Okay, now if you got that part of it, then I can move to the second stage, which is that the author of Hebrews takes these two concepts and blends them together. What he says is he starts to blend together this idea that Jesus is a priest with the Old Testament requirement of sacrifice. So what he says is that Jesus, when he died... He became the final sacrifice for all the sins of humanity. Look, here's the argument that he makes right here. Unlike other high priests, Jesus has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. This he did once for all when he offered himself. So here's the completion of this argument. The temple is destroyed in 70 AD. You can't offer the sacrifices anymore, which means that God can no longer render forgiveness through the sacrificial system. Can't do it anymore. But because Jesus is a priest and a sacrifice all in one package, you can still be forgiven of your sins if you believe in Jesus. In this way, Jesus is the completion of the sacrificial system. Through Jesus' sacrifice, you are forgiven permanently. That's the argument. Were you with me the whole time? All right, click off. Woo. You don't have to pay attention anymore, okay? You got that. Okay, now, I will tell you that when I first read this argument a long time ago, I thought this argument was very compelling. Because to me, I believe that this is the argument that made Christianity possible. Because it linked together the Old and the New Testament. It made them work as one. But then when I was in my mid-twenties, I started going through a process in my life where I started taking a step back and questioning some of my assumptions about what I believed to be true. And so I was going back further. I wasn't just dealing with the beliefs. I was going to the assumptions behind the belief. And one question I asked myself in the midst of this process was I said, why does God need to shed blood in order to forgive human sin? Why does God need to sacrifice a living being to forgive me for my mistakes? That was the question I started to ask. And so I started going to all these different people. I went to Christians. I went to people I was in seminary with. I started asking these questions of all these different people. And what I found is that nobody really had a good answer to this question. 
Like, people had answers. Don't get me wrong. They had answers. But as I would start to dig into those answers and pick them apart, they would get frustrated with me. And they would finally be like, you know what, Alex? I don't know. Okay? It's what it says in the Bible. I don't know why God requires blood. He just does. So you need to take up your argument with God because God is the one who chooses how we are forgiven. Now you can imagine, since you all have known me over the last couple of years, that answer was not exactly sufficient for me. So I started doing a little bit of research. And what I discovered is that animal sacrifice was utilized by every ancient culture in the Middle East for worshiping their gods. Now, if you take a look at this and you actually go back, you find that the Jews are not the first ones to come up with this concept. It goes back, the first people, it goes back to the Badari culture of ancient Egypt, of Upper Egypt. Now that is 4400 BC. That's 4,000 years before our Bible, the Old Testament, was being written. 4,000 years. Now it would be one thing if the Jews were the first religion in the history of humanity to ever have a sacrificial system. That would be one thing. But that's not the case. The fact is that when the Jews were writing their scriptures, animal sacrifice was in vogue. And so they incorporated animal sacrifice into their worship of God because it was what everybody else was doing. So when I hear a Christian say to me, that the reason why the sacrificial system exists in the Old Testament is because God created it. I have trouble with that historically, personally. And you know who agrees with me on this? The Jews, the ones who have this in their Bible. See, what most people don't know, and I learned this from one of my professors at seminary. She was a Jew who converted to Christianity. She told me, she said, you know, what most people don't realize is that just before the temple was destroyed, like about a decade or two before, the temple was actually falling into disuse. People weren't going there like they used to to offer sacrifices anymore. And the reason why they weren't going there any longer is because there was a shift in thinking. There were some rabbis who were coming forward and they were saying to the Jewish people, you know what? The sacrificial system isn't necessary for God to forgive you of your sins. God can forgive you without those sacrifices. And that's what caused people to stop going to the temple. So I want to pose this question to you this morning. And it's a very hard question. For those of you who can't see, this is a vial of blood. Does, can God forgive us without shedding blood? I ask that question. Can God forgive us without shedding blood? Now, I know this is a hard question because it's a lose-lose when it comes to Christianity, isn't it? If you say, no, God cannot forgive you without shedding blood, then what does that say about God? Well, it makes God seem murderous and bloodthirsty because essentially what it comes down to is that in order for God to forgive you, God has to kill something. In other words, when you sin, that means that God wants to kill you. And therefore, something else has to be killed in your place. In the theology world, we call this substitutionary atonement. Because you're substituting something for you. Now, if you say yes, oh, that's even worse in some ways, right? Because what does that do to Jesus' sacrifice? All of a sudden, we sit there and say, well, 
Did he die for nothing? Was it meaningless? Why are we even following Jesus if that doesn't matter? This is a hard question, isn't it? I mean, I know this is a hard question. It's why I'm bringing it up this morning. So I want to tell you my answer to this question. And again, as I tell you with most things, this is my opinion. You can take it or you can leave it. Now, I believe that God can forgive us without shedding blood. I do not think that the shedding of blood is a requirement for God to forgive us of our sins. Let me explain to you why. What I often hear people say is that Jesus had to die so that we could be forgiven of our sins. That's the, that's the term, right? Had to die. Now, when you think about that, what that means is that's a small box, is it not? I mean, to say that Jesus had to die and absent that event, we could not be forgiven, that's hard for me because to me, I think that absent that event, God could still forgive us because I believe God is bigger than any of that. God could forgive us no matter what. Now, in believing that, I want you to know and hear me, don't zone out on me here if, you're, if you, if you hear, heard what I said first. In saying that, I do not think that Jesus' death is somehow meaningless. I think Jesus' death and sacrifice has extraordinary meaning. In fact, I believe it's one of the most important events in history because the fact is, without his death and his sacrifice, we would not know the depth of God's forgiveness. We would not know the extent to which God is willing to forgive us. Now, rather than tell you all these arguments for why I believe that to be true, I would like to end this morning by telling you a story that will illustrate to you what I mean by this. Are we good with that? All right. The story takes place in Augusta, Georgia in 1959. A black man named Nathaniel Johnson, he has been arrested for the rape of a white woman. He's taken into custody, and the police officers sit him down and they're questioning him. But they're not really getting anywhere with the confession. So the chief of police, he walks in and he ushers all of the other police officers out. And he's in there alone with Nathaniel Johnson for a couple of hours. And when he emerges, he has in his hand a signed confession from Nathaniel Johnson that he committed the rape. Now, according to the police officers who walked in to escort Nathaniel to his cell, he looked pretty beat up. Because Nathaniel Johnson cannot afford a lawyer, he was assigned a lawyer, a public defender, and this lawyer gave him some advice. He said, here's what you need to do. You need to plead guilty to this crime and have this white woman corroborate your guilty plea because what's going to happen is you'll get life in prison and that'll help you avoid the electric chair. So he says, okay, that's what I'll do. So he pleads guilty. She corroborates his claim. And during the sentencing phase, he does not receive life in prison. He's given the electric chair. And when he is executed, many people said Nathaniel Johnson got what he deserved. Now, as you could probably guess, there's more to this story than meets the eye. Because Nathaniel Johnson, he was having an affair with this white woman who accused him of rape. She was married to another white guy, and they ended up getting together. And through their affair, she ended up getting pregnant. And what happened is that one night, they were together talking about what they were going to do about this situation. And they got into an argument over it, and he hit her. And so when she went home, the only way she, did, she could explain the bruises on her face 
and the fact that she was pregnant to her husband was by saying that she had been raped by a black man, which is what led to the arrest of Nathaniel Johnson. Now, I want to ask you a couple of questions around this story. And these questions have to do with who does God need to forgive in this particular situation? Let's start with Nathaniel Johnson. Does he need to be forgiven? Yes. Well, yes, he does. He hit this woman, and I don't think a man should ever hit a woman. Violence is always wrong. And he's having an affair, which he shouldn't have done. So that's what he needs to be forgiven for. How about the woman with whom he's having an affair? Does she need to be forgiven? Absolutely she does. Well, she shouldn't have given a false statement to the police, first of all, and she shouldn't have been having an extramarital affair outside the covenant of marriage. How about the chief of police? Does he need to be forgiven? Absolutely he does. He elicited a false confession from Nathaniel Johnson. How about Nathaniel's lawyer, his public defender? Does he need to be forgiven? Absolutely he does. He gave Nathaniel Johnson advice knowing full well exactly where that was going to lead. How about the executioner who flipped the switch on Nathaniel Johnson? Does he need to be forgiven? He executed an innocent man. Absolutely he does. He needs to be forgiven. How about all the Americans who created a racist environment where a black man could not receive a fair trial for a crime he didn't commit. Oh yes, I think all of those people are responsible and all those people need to be forgiven. You see, it's one thing when we sit here and we say, you committed this crime and you need to be forgiven. It's a whole other thing when you look at a sin and you realize that so many people are responsible for that sin being committed. If you're going to forgive the sin of executing Nathaniel Johnson, an innocent man, it requires the forgiveness of millions and millions of people, not just those who are involved. And so, when we're talking about the forgiveness of sins, what I think we often neglect to realize is that it's so much bigger than the individual act. There is so much more involved, and that we as people who are trying to understand all of this, there's a lot that we have trouble wrapping our minds around. And so when God's forgiving something, it's so much bigger than what we can even begin to comprehend. But it's thanks to Jesus' death that we understand the depth of that forgiveness. You know what Jesus tells us in the New Testament? He's very specific. He says that the sins that we commit... They are so complex and so interconnected that God chose to go down a very different path with us when it comes to forgiveness. Rather than holding each individual person accountable for their sins, God makes a decision. What God's going to do is take the burden of that punishment on himself. It's as if God is sitting here and saying, I gave you life, and I'm going to take responsibility for that by taking responsibility for the mistakes you have made and I'm going to make them right. But we would not know that if it wasn't for Jesus. Thanks to his life and his death and his sacrifice, we know that God's love is truly unconditional, which means that God's forgiveness is truly unconditional. It has no limits. When Jesus died on the cross, what he did for us is he showed us that God would do anything, anything, to make it right. And so through that sacrifice, 
what it informs us of is that no matter how much sin you carry on your back, no matter how much you have contributed to the pain and suffering of others, and by the way, what does that story show you? Do we contribute to the pain and suffering of others without even knowing it? Absolutely we do. And we are responsible for those things. And we need to be forgiven for those things. But God is willing to do anything to make it right. God does not need blood to forgive us of our sins. But that blood does show us how deep God's forgiveness can go to restore a broken and hurting world. That is why I'm a Christian. That is why I follow Jesus. And that is why I'm here today. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.